Uh, we're up to uh, one of my favorite stories uh, in the whole of the Bible. And the reason why this is one of my favorite stories in the whole of the Bible is not because it's full of ma manipulation and intrigue and uh, lying, cheating, stealing, um, but because this story um, rings true to me in the sense that this seems like an accurate portrayal of human beings and the way in which uh, we are driven, the way in which we behave, and the way in which we kind of go about uh, getting what we want, right? And so um, we're going to look at this text and, a, and, a, and, a, and another text uh, from uh, Jacob's life as well this morning to kind of help us uh, get, uh, get our brains around that. But first, now let me pray, and then I'll read uh, the text that's in the bulletin. Lord, it is so good for us to rest in the fact today that your purpose is not thwarted uh, and that uh, you, um, uh, when you promise to be faithful, when you promise to bring about certain things, when you are at work in the world, nothing, not even our own manipulation, not even our own scheming, not even our own attempts at um, uh, doing good things uh, for bad reasons, or what bad means uh, keeps you from accomplishing your purpose. And so we pray now as we read this text that you would remind us that you love us, that you would set us free from the need to control and manipulate and scheme, and that you would give us faith. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Genesis 27, verses 1 through 13. Uh, text is in the bulletin also up on the screens behind me. When Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food. By the way, the other thing about this text, the word delicious appears here probably more than anywhere else in the Bible. These guys... These guys, as we'll see, really like their food. So, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before, uh, before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. Okay, Scott, you can go ahead and put my notes up there. So, if the, the people... Um, uh, are, are interesting, right? With the, with the way we tend to think about human beings often is we think that human beings are rational, right? 
the, that, that we are driven by logic and rationality and that sort of thing. The truth is, that's a lie. People are driven, most often, primarily, by desire. We want what we want when we want it. That is the thing that motivates us. That is the thing that uh, uh, drives us. That is the thing that is true of every one of us. And so we, we, even if we are coming at something from a rational standpoint, you, you, you understand that your desires are not too far away from that. And in fact, what we see in this text is everybody in here, the four main characters in this story, all have their desires and they're going to do whatever they can to see to it that what they want, they get. And what they want, they, they will use any means available to them to, uh, to achieve that. <clears throat> so one of the things that is so important for us to understand about this is, is that God sees this, God's aware of this, and he is still at work in this family and he's still faithful to love them and still faithful to make uh, his promise uh, come to pass. Now, I, I, I want to be, be really clear with you today about this, this issue of desire. Uh, desires in and of themselves are not necessarily bad. But when we want something good so bad that we will use others simply as a means to get what we want, then that's become an evil desire, even if that thing is good, right? So, uh, or sometimes we just want things too much. And sometimes we want things that we shouldn't want, things that really aren't due us. Uh, if you're familiar at all with church history, you know that uh, the um, church father, St. Augustine, uh, kind of came to grips with the fact that he was a sinner uh, over the fact that he stole some pears from an orchard. And there's a great, if, if you ever, you know, Google that, look that up, it is a great story. It's, it's really helpful for us to, to understand this. Uh, I have a similar story. Um, I don't really think, you know, most kids who grew up in the church, uh, don't really think they're sinners. I mean, they think that they, you know, they bug mom and dad and that kind of stuff. But, but we tend not to have these really terrible stories where we do really, really terrible things and then God turns us around. But when I was six years old, uh, I was visiting with uh, one of my aunts. Uh, our family was there, and they had a tiny little house in this little town in North Carolina, and they had a garage apartment with another aunt and uncle lived up in that apartment. But the garage had a freezer in it, and this freezer, back in the 60s, freezers used to be about the size of a, a mid-sized car, okay? <laughs> it, was, it was really big, and I, was, I just was amazed that they had this freezer. Well, my aunt took me out to the uh, garage, to the freezer, and she said, I have something for you. And she opened the freezer, and she gave me an ice cream sandwich. I'd never had an ice cream sandwich. I didn't know what it was. We didn't buy ice cream. We had lame homemade ice cream. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how your six-year-old mind works with this, right? Because that, 
that what, you know, whatever the corn syrup and the, you know, hydrogenated oils or whatever in that, that, that thing are way better than what we had. So she gave me that um, uh, ice cream sandwich. I wolfed it down. This is the best thing I'd ever eaten in my life. And I noticed that there were others in the freezer. So when nobody was looking, I went and got another one out, got behind the freezer, and ate it. It was almost as good as the first one. So good, in fact, that when nobody was looking, I went and got a third one and ate it. So my aunt is fixing dinner for us, and she needs to get something out of the freezer. She goes out there, and she opens the freezer, and lo and behold, the stack of uh, ice cream sandwiches is much diminished. And so my mom, (coughs) being the perceptive woman that she is, being confronted with a six-year-old boy who's got (laughs) ice cream on his face, she says, you ate all those ice cream sandwiches, didn't you? And I was like, no. No, I didn't do that. And she said, why did you do that? Which is a fundamental rule of parenting. Never ask your kid why they did something, ever. Because they don't know. (laughs) At best, what they know is because I wanted to. And God loves honesty. So that's, that's really the only thing I had to say was, I wanted to. I did it because I wanted to do it. Right? Um, So the fact is, uh, for most of us, in most situations, we do what we want to do. And we are driven by our desires, whether it's to eat something or to satisfy some sort of need or to get someone else to do what we want them to do. We are, we are driven by that thing. And so what we see here in this text, <coughs> interestingly enough, is four people driven by desire, and they'll do almost anything to see to it that they get their desires. And so you can, if you just read this story, you may begin to think, well, I like you know, Team Esau because you know, he's the guy that's getting cheated here, or I like Team Isaac because... You know, Isaac is, he's just a sad old man and he's being used. Or I like team Rebecca because she's aligned herself with God's chosen one, Jacob, and so she's going to make it happen. Or I like team Jacob who has, is so, um, our father, so uh, uh, struck by integrity that his only fear is, what if I get caught? Right? So, as we look at this, I think it's a very helpful kind of study in human depravity, because you have to see what's happening here in light of what goes before. In chapter 25, we have this words to us. It says, the boys grew up, that is Esau and Jacob. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. While Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, here's 
alarm bells should start going off in our heads because already there's favoritism at work uh, in the family. Next slide. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. And he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Now, the, the thing is, that, that, seems, uh, that, that wording there is not really accurate because uh, Esau is barely making sense uh, in the Hebrew, the original language. It's like he's grunting, basically, to be like, I'm so hungry, I'm so hangry, I'll do anything. He's not really starving, but he doesn't, you know, he's just driven by his appetite. Um, Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, and, and the birthright is, uh, uh, in this culture, uh, people who, who are born first, the sons who are born first, get the lion's share of the inheritance, they lead the family, they get blessed, they're kind of the ones in charge. It's a bad system, right? Because that's why kings don't work, because... Uh, there's no meritocracy in this at all, you know. It's just you got this position because you were born to it, whether you're any good or not. Well, both of these boys are terrible. So um, um, he says, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. And here's the commentary that Moses leaves for us. So Esau despised his birthright. So driven by desire, so driven by his appetite, so driven by his hunger at that moment that the thing that should have been most precious to him, the thing that gave him his identity, the thing that placed him in the line of the family, that thing which was supposedly one of the greatest gifts that would ever be given to him, he traded away. He swore an oath. Yeah, you can have it. But even now we see here in the text that we've read earlier that he is acting as if he never swore that oath. He certainly didn't tell his father that he swore that oath. And here he is going about the business to go back on that oath. Jacob knows his brother well enough to know that he can get him, manipulate him into doing what he wants him to do uh, by cooking some good smelling lentil stew for him. <clears throat> Rebecca has heard the prophecy from God, as you, we'll see, next slide, uh, and uh, it's, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Isaac is ignoring that. Rebecca sees that, and she thinks, you know what, I'm going to make sure this happens. I'm going to make sure it happens now. So she takes matters into our, her own hands, right? And see, the thing that is so dramatic to us uh, about this, we see this as a quaint little story about food and sibling rivalry and that kind of stuff. But the fact is, this is a window into our desperate need of a Savior. This is our window into our desperate need of salvation. Because the writer to, to Hebrews says, let, let, let no one who is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. In other words, 
whether it's sex or whether it's food or whether it's money or whether it's status or whatever, the, the fact is what we have to be very careful about is, is that uh, these things will drive us to be and do ugly, ugly, ugly things. And the fact of the matter is, for many of us and for much of the way our lives work, uh, we just accept this kind of issue of manipulation and this kind of issue of trying to get other people to do what we want them to do as a natural, normal course of life. And that, in fact, success looks like manipulating people to do what you want them to do. Uh, I said in the early service that um, I know a lot of fellas uh, and women who, who do uh, MBA programs. And a lot of MBA programs are great because they train you how to get people to do what you want them to do. Um, and it, even if that means manipulating them to do what you want them to do. So one, uh, a man who was at the early service came up to me and said, well, actually, my MBA program said, don't manipulate the people that you're in a long-term relationship with because you might need them later on, but if you're in a short-term relationship with somebody, manipulate the daylights out of them. We just kind of accept that as the way to do business, the way to live, the way to manage, the way uh, uh, to do those things, right? Many of you uh, who I performed your wedding ceremonies will remember that for years and years and years, we did that great classic book, The Marriage Builder, by Larry Crabb. People would read it. Go along with it, everything's hunky-dory till you get to chapter 4. Chapter 4, everybody runs off the rails. Because chapter 4, Crab basically says, in your relationships with other people, you're either manipulating them or you're loving them. And everybody's like, I hate that. I reject that. I reject that. And not only, not only do I reject that, I, I reject that because... How You mean every single interaction I have with my husband or my wife, I have to stop and think, now am I manipulating you or am I loving you in this moment? That's, that's just not practical. Well, you know, and, and I've thought about that. I have a million interactions with Marty in a week. And so I think, Lord, really, are you calling on me to ask myself, am I manipulating her or am I loving her? Fortunately, I don't have to think about that because she tells me. <laughs> right? I don't have to spend a lot of time and energy on that. She's really helpful with that, helping me repent of my sin there, right? So, so, but the fact of the matter is, we often think, well, I'm going to manipulate these people into doing something that's actually good for them. That's what Rebecca's doing. Rebecca has heard the prophecy of God that Jacob gets the birthright. So what's she going to do? She's going to take matters into her own hands, and she's going to achieve a good end through terrible means. That, is, that, is, that, is, that might be worse than just stark, raving manipulation. This is a mess. 
and what makes it such a, such a mess is no one in the story is thinking, whoa, hold on. Hold on here. We're, we're, not, we're not living right. We're not, we're not loving each other. We are using other image bearers. We are using people that we, we love, and we are moving them about on a chessboard to accomplish our purpose, to accomplish what I want, to get you to be and to do the thing that will serve me. And the fact is, for most of us, in most of our relationships, and, and I, I don't know about how much mental space you spend in, in your own head thinking about this, but we spend an awful lot of time working on this, don't we? How can I get these people to do and to be the way I want them to do and to be? I know if I do this, I'll get them to do that. Or maybe I can lead them in this way. And you see, the sin there is not just simply that our desires are out of hand, but our desires are out of hand, and that because our desires are out of hand, that leads us to, tr to treat image bearers, people who are dear to Jesus, people who may even Jesus may have died for and rose again for that belong to him, and they are simply become to us a means to an end. And so it's so ugly. So what I want you to... what uh, Next slide, please, Scott. What I want you to see about... Uh, about this, this family, uh, and I want you, what I want you to see about yourself today is that left to our own devices, this is the way we are going to go about our business, and we'll never stop and think, wait, wait, does the gospel impact me or this situation in any way, shape, or form? We are a desperate mess. And so this family that we see here, these four people, mom and dad, twin sons, are a wreck. And unless God uh, intervenes and unless he does his work here, the fact of the matter is it's going to get worse. So what do we do? Well, how do we think about this? And how do you change? How do we change? Because when we see people like this, we see this as, we, I mean, it's hard not to see how ugly this is, but at the same time, you know, put yourself in the story because this is true of every one of us. So how does Jesus change us? Well, first of all, he says, don't do this, okay? Let's be clear about that. You know, this is not how you live. This is not how... Uh, uh, he designed, this is not what he created, created us to live and, and to do. But he does more than that. The thing that he does to change us is he loves us. See, the thing that Jesus does here is, is and, and what the gospel does, the gospel logic of change here is, is if God is so for you, if Jesus loved you enough to die for you, if, if Jesus is your true older brother, sacrificed his birthright by, by dying on a cross for you, <clears throat> rising again for you, if those things are true of him, then I can rest in who he has made me to be, what he has called me to be. I can rest in what he has done for me, and I don't have to spend my time and energy manipulating other people to get them to be and to do the things that I think they need to, get to, to do and to be. I can simply serve them. 
I, I can simply let go of my agenda, which is the only agenda, and trust that God loves me enough that he will provide for me, see me through, and, and lead me through these kind of challenging relationships. You see, that's the logic here of, what, of, of how Jesus works in us, that he loves us so much that he sets us free from the drive to feel like we're all alone and that if we don't uh, manipulate, move, uh, challenge to, to get things the way we want them, we'll, we'll be lost. When in fact the promise of God to us is that he is for us, that he loves us, we can rest in that, and we need not be driven uh, to be manipulators. We can simply serve and simply uh, love the people that God puts uh, in our place. So as we uh, come to the table today, it's a great opportunity for us to kind of rest our hearts and souls in the reality of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, as we uh, uh, will uh, read here in just a few minutes, you know, this, this Last Supper where Jesus gathers with his disciples is quite a fest of manipulation, isn't it? They are uh, concerned about who's going to be first and who's going to have to wash feet and uh, who's going to get the, uh, their jockeying for position uh, to get close enough to Jesus. And Jesus sees through all of that works in the midst of that and continues to on his purpose of redeeming, restoring, forgiving, atoning for these men. Matthew writes, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus. They, they did as he had directed them and prepared the Passover. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you and my Father's kingdom. Let's confess our sins by using this confession of sin that's on the screens behind me, also in the bulletin. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear these words of encouragement. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. 
I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it, just as I do now, ministering in his name, and he gave it to his followers. We often justify our manipulation and our sin because we think, oh, this, this is manipulating someone for their own good, or this is, this is leading them to make uh, good choices, right? When the fact of the matter is, um, whenever we are doing that, we, f- we forget uh, that this person is someone who is very dear, who is an image bearer, who has dignity, and we treat them simply as a as someone or something to help us achieve our agenda. That runs through almost all of human history, uh, runs through almost all families, is true of all of us. And so Jesus sees that. He steps into this world. He dies our death, giving up his birthright, giving up his place in the family, so that we would have a seat at the table. And with love so rich and free and so good, we can lay down our arms of manipulation and our attempts at making people less than they are, and we can trust Him. You see, that's what we should do when we read about a family like Jacob's family is. It should cause us to despair of all of those things we attempt to do to manipulate ends and means to achieve what we want. Rather, at the heart of the gospel is Jesus has died for us. We trust that. Jesus has loved us, and he continues to love us. We trust that. We can rest in that, and we can know that he will bless us, and he will see us through until the very end. That gives us confidence and sets us free from the constant need of having to view other people simply as means to an end. That's our hope. And even today, as you come to the table, you may be reminded, or someone may remind you of the way you manipulated or the way you used someone just this week. Jesus knows that about you. In fact, that is precisely why he came uh, to die. Uh, to set you free from that. Turn from that need to manipulate, embrace, and be embraced uh, by his love for you. Take the bread, take the cup, and hold and eat in your hands those things which are tokens to you of the fact that Jesus has forgiven you, that he loves you, and that he will give you everything you need to follow him. If that is your profession and you have professed to a body of believers somewhere that Jesus is your Lord, that he died, rose again, and that you are trusting him uh, to see you through to the end, that you trust him uh, to have your sins forgiven, and that you trust him.